very disturbing to some. And the doctrine of election in general is quite upsetting to some. If God chooses one person over another to be saved, people reason that God must be unjust. To many, there is something inherently unjust, unrighteous, downright wrong with the doctrine of election. Paul anticipates that objection and so addresses it in Romans 9, 14 to 18. He raises an anticipated question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? If salvation is the way that so many people picture it, and that is simply that, that man is left with a choice and man is left with his free will and some choose to believe and some choose not to believe, the question would never be raised as to the justice of God. All would shake their head and say, yes, that's appropriate, that's right, that's good, that's the way things ought to be. But that's not what the scriptures teach. And so Paul raises the question, is there injustice with God? The immediate response that comes to Paul's mind regarding the question, is there injustice with God, is significant. For if you notice at the end of verse 14, we find out that such a thought, that is that God is unjust, is sacrilegious. It is unthinkable. Notice at the end of verse 14, the ESV, by no means, NAS, may it never be, NIV, not at all, King James, God forbid. Here we walk on dangerous ground. We must guard against being disrespectful or impudent in our relationship to God. God has just declared what he does in election. So we must be careful as to how we respond to such teaching. There are at least two inappropriate responses that we can have to the doctrine of election. There are many, but these two are the most common. The first inappropriate response is to downplay or ignore the Bible's teaching on election out of an embarrassment for God. We simply avoid it. We don't talk about it. We don't address it. We pretend that the doctrine doesn't exist. The second inappropriate response to the Bible's teaching on election is to simply reject it outright as being morally unacceptable. And you hear people say such things as, I would not worship a God like that. We must not be so arrogant as to allow our logic, our reason, or our sense of what is right and wrong to become the standard of righteousness by which God must conduct himself. After all, we are accountable to God. God is not accountable to us. God is holy. We are not. He stands in judgment over us. We don't stand in judgment over God. And so we must be very careful as we charge God with being unjust. And yet, when raised with a proper humility, the question whether God is just or not 
in choosing one person over another is very important. The answer that we give, we need to give with great care. For God does care how we view him. God is quite concerned that we understand that God is just. One of the worst things we could say about God is that that what God does is unjust. For God is very careful to demonstrate his justice, especially when it comes to salvation. In Romans chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, but it reads, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's justice is seen in the pouring out of his wrath on his own son. God went to great lengths to maintain justice and holiness and that which is right and proper when it comes to salvation. And so God graciously condescends to explain his actions to us. We are going to be in a portion of scripture where God is going to demonstrate to us his justice, his goodness, and his glory. So our theme this morning is that God is not unrighteous in saving some and not in saving others. Rather than Paul soft-pedaling his response in light of potential objections, Paul makes the case for election even stronger. And in making his case, Paul appeals to the scriptures. For Paul, the issue is not whether the doctrine of election passes the courts of human judgment. For Paul, the question is whether or not the doctrine of election is what the scriptures actually teach. The question is, is it biblical? And so I begin by saying, oh, that we would have the same reverence for the word of God that in answering any theological question, that the ultimate solution to that question is, what does the Bible teach? What does it say? There should be no significant difference between what we say and what the Bible says. We need to say what the Bible says. If you look at verse 14, the question is asked, what should we say then? What should our conclusion be? How should we talk about this? What should we say then? Now look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, that is God. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. So what should we say? We should say what the scripture says. That's what we should say. That's what we should believe. That should be our response. Our response is what does the scripture say? So this morning we are going to look at what does the scripture say about the doctrine of election and the justice of God.
The first thing we're going to find out in this text is that God is not unrighteous in choosing some and not choosing others because salvation comes not as a result of justice, but of mercy. Let me say that again. God is not unjust in choosing some and not choosing others because salvation comes not as a result of justice, but of mercy. Notice verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, Distinction must be made between justice and mercy. Justice is getting what a person deserves. Mercy is taking pity upon an individual and showing them a kindness that they do not deserve. So by its very uh, understanding of salvation, it is undeserved. Though Jacob and Esau are not even born yet, or have personally done any good or evil, they are still viewed as fallen, and thus sinful due to their relationship to Adam. We saw all that back in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, when Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned with him. So when it's talking about having mercy on Jacob and Esau, it's because both of them are seen as in a sinful state, a sinful condition. Not their own personal sin, for they had not yet done anything good or bad. But they were in a state of sinfulness due to Adam's sin. And thus, both stood in a place of needing mercy. Mercy. Neither one of them deserved to be saved. Neither one of them were getting justice. Justice would have been for everyone to have been lost. No one deserves to be saved. God has the right to sovereignly bestow his mercy at his discretion. Verse 15 is a quotation of Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And God declares that mercy is administered at his own discretion. For notice it says in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God reserves a right to dispense mercy at his own discretion. Mercy is not required on the part of God. And withholding mercy, he has done no injustice to anyone. No one is lost who deserves to be saved. God is not obligated to save anyone. And uh, one of the things that demonstrates that to me the most is that God provided no salvation for the angels that fell. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but uh, it's one of the reasons that the angels asked the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Why are you concerned about mankind? <laughs> you weren't even concerned about us. You made no provision for the salvation of the angels, and yet God saves mankind. God is not obligated to show mercy God's choice rests with himself. 
The scriptures teach that God's choice is not determined by something found in human beings. Here is the practical application that God's choice is founded upon mercy and not justice. If you look at verse 16, it says, so then, so then. Here's the application. Here's the reality. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but of God who has mercy. The scriptures deny that God's choice is based upon the individual's will. God does not choose us because he knows that we will choose him. Notice verse 16. So then, it depends not, circle, not, not on human will. Oftentimes, the discussion of election centers upon man's quote-unquote free will, about man's choices, about what man decides. And yet, the scriptures make it abundantly clear it's not a result of man's will. This is not an isolated teaching in the book of Romans. This is not an isolated teaching in the Apostle Paul, but this is the uniform teaching of the Scriptures. Listen to John's word in the Gospel of John. John 1.12 and following. But to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. I don't know how more clearly you can say that. Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So we're not talking about here the result of man's will and God looking down a quarter of time and seeing who will believe and then choosing who will believe based on knowing what they are going to, to choose. And we saw that earlier in the book of Romans as well. In his limited mankind, mankind often believes that God's choice is predicated upon our choice. The scripture teaches that God's choice is not predicated upon our choice, but our choice is predicated upon his. We, many of us, know the verse, we love him because he first loved us. Ours is a response. We are responding to God. God is not responding to us, or to place it in another way, God's action is initiative. He takes on the initiative. God sent his son into the world. Nobody asked him to come. God took the initiative in every aspect of salvation. Secondly, God's choice is not predicated or determined upon man's efforts. Look at verse 16. So then it depends not on human will, and now this, or exertion. The NAS translates that, or the man who runs. 
In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, it says, it's not because of works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, many have memorized that portion of scripture. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's not based on our will, nor is it based on our efforts, our works. There is nothing that we do or potentially do that merits God's choosing us for salvation. There is nothing within us. It's about God. Notice verse uh, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. The choice lies within God, who has mercy, who has mercy. So the application is that salvation is not about our receiving what we deserve, for no one deserves to be saved. Salvation is a result of God's grace and mercy. Secondly, God is not unrighteous in choosing some and not choosing others because he has a righteous purpose in the choices that he makes. Because he has a righteous purpose in the choices that he makes. God's choices are not arbitrary. It is not malicious, nor is it capricious. To be arbitrary is to be decisive without reason. God's choice is not without foundation. God has good reason for the choices that he makes. And those reasons are in keeping with his holiness, his goodness, and his salvific purposes. God has a purpose in election. And I want you to see this because it comes up time and time again, starting at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose, if you circle in your Bible or make notes, circle the word purpose, that God's purpose of election might continue. God has a purpose in bestowing mercy upon those whom he has mercy. I, I think most of us get that, all right? That God has a reason, found in himself, not in us, in why God has mercy upon us. We know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we also know verse 10. For by grace you save through faith, and not, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before hath ordained that we should walk in them. So God has a purpose. God has a reason for our lives. And we are saved to accomplish that purpose or that reason. We get that. But God also has a purpose in those whom he does not save. He also has a reason in not saving those whom he does not. God has a purpose in withholding his mercy from Pharaoh. God had a purpose in withholding his mercy from Pharaoh. Notice in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
for this very purpose. Purpose. Circle it. Purpose. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. This is a quotation of Exodus chapter 9, verse 6. God placed Pharaoh in a place of prominence and authority. Notice again in verse 17. I have raised you up. It was no coincidence. It was no accident that Pharaoh was indeed the Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. It wasn't just one of those happenings that Moses dealt with this honorary Pharaoh that uh, had come into power. But the scripture says that God placed him in that role. God placed him in that position. God had raised him up. And it's not just Pharaoh. In the book of Daniel, concerning the sovereign working of God, it says this, he, that is God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God raises up, God removes kings. God placed Pharaoh in a place of prominence and authority for the express purpose of God demonstrating his power. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. What is it? Here's the answer, that I might show my power in you. God raised up Pharaoh so that God's name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth, bringing glory to God and salvation to others. Notice the end of verse 17. And that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God had a reason. God had a purpose. Pharaoh was actually accomplishing God's designed purpose and will. And so we find in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he, soever he wills, and he hardens whomsoever he wills. This is God's sovereign act. We are going to look at that in much greater detail next Sunday night. I have chosen uh, to address that issue of hardening Pharaoh's heart by doing that in an evening service uh, next Sunday night. This Sunday, of course, we don't have an evening service because it's Fellowship Sunday. So next Sunday night, I'm going to depart from my Revelation series just to address this issue because I need handouts. <laughs> uh, I, I want to take us through uh, a ton of verses in, in uh, Exodus and, and explain that in much greater detail. We'll do that next week. But the point is that God's purpose is fulfilled in Pharaoh. And God's purpose was fulfilled. God did display his power. In the plagues that came upon Egypt, in the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, and in Pharaoh's army perishing in the Red Sea. Exodus 14, 31 says, And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had 
used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. God's power was displayed. Even God's salvific message was made known. God's accomplishing his purpose in election is what is stressed throughout chapters 8 and 9. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 8. You know the verse well. Starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Here we go again. So God has a purpose. And in verse 28, it says, everything works together for good. Sin and belief, obedience and disobedience, everything is orchestrated by God to ultimately accomplish his purpose. And so that is why we know that all things work together for our good, because God is indeed sovereign. He is in control. Mankind is incapable of raising their fist and thwarting the will of God. It can't be done. It can't be done. God is God, and we are not. God does what he pleases. And no one can stay his hand. That raises another question. If you look at verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? All right? If everybody's doing what God wants them to do, then, then why does God find fault with those who are sinning? That's next week. Come back. All right? But you see, that question wouldn't be raised if it wasn't for what is being said in verses 14 through 18. Short application, God had a purpose in choosing Jacob, and he had a purpose in not choosing Esau. God had a purpose in showing mercy to Jacob. He had a purpose in not showing mercy to Esau or to Pharaoh. That purpose is the key. And it is a right purpose. It is a holy purpose. It is a just purpose, as we will see in the weeks to come. So our conclusion as we get ready for communion, what's the proper response to the doctrine of election? First, it is to understand that God is righteous in all that he does. Those who are saved are not getting what they deserve. They are receiving mercy. Those who are not saved are not being denied anything that they deserve. They are not being denied justice. Secondly, God has a purpose in all that he does. And all things serve that purpose. That is why we can be assured that all things work together for good to those that love God. God is not sitting in heaven and fretting. God's not being challenged and overcome. 
In John chapter 17, starting with verse 1, Jesus says, you have given me authority over all flesh. And then he goes on to say, to give salvation to those that you have given to him. But he has authority over all flesh. He has power over all flesh, over every human being. There is no one that is outside of God's sovereignty. So we will look at the objection. Verse 19, who will say to me then, why does he resist his will next week? Thirdly, we should not be embarrassed by the doctrine of election. For God certainly is not. God does not hide this from us. God does not seek to veil this from us. God doesn't seek to shroud this in obscurity. God declares what he does openly and freely and blatantly. Why? Why? Because the doctrine is righteous, because the doctrine is merciful, and the doctrine is glorious. That's what God says, that you might see my glory. How antithetical, how totally inappropriate is it to take a doctrine that's intended to bring glory to God and then turn around and say, God is unjust and dishonor him because of that very doctrine. We may not understand it all in this morning, cannot be an exhaustive uh, treatment of that particular doctrine. All I'm trying to demonstrate to you this morning is that God is just. God is holy. God is good. God does what he does with reason and mercy and kindness and injustice. We must be careful in the way that we speak of our God and the way that we respond to our God and the way that we submit to our God. And this morning as we take communion, may we ever be mindful of God's mercy to us in saving us. May we, as we partake of communion, do so with humility. As we partake individually of this bread and this cup, this is my body which is for you. As you sat, sit here this morning, Jesus died for you, as we looked at two weeks ago. This is mercy given to you. And may we realize as we partake of communion that there was nothing in us that merited that. There was nothing in us that caused that to come to pass. We are simply recipients of God's mercy. So how tremendously thankful we should be. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. And Lord, I pray that as we partake of communion that we would honor and glorify you as a God